In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. This is Sandy, and welcome to another episode of Money Tales. Our guest today, Vincent Valeri, had his future cut out for him. His destiny was to take over the family enterprise that his father founded. Vincent never questioned this future. It was just part of who he was and what he was meant to do. Since his path was paved, Vincent had the flexibility to live a party lifestyle, enjoying the fruits of his father's path. He started gaining some perspective on who he was as an individual when he headed off to Australia for grad school in his 20s. That was really important because soon after he returned home, Vincent learned that for very good business reasons, his dad was selling the company. With that sale went Vincent's future as the successor CEO. Cammie here. We think you'll find this episode compelling because what seemed like Vincent's biggest nightmare turned out to be what he considers a blessing. His personal experience ultimately led Vincent to work with and serve family enterprises. He is a family enterprise advisor and a certified family legacy and executive leadership coach. The discussion with Vincent inspired this week's financial insight at the end of the interview, where we discuss succession considerations for family businesses. But first, here's our conversation with Vincent Valeri. Hello, Vincent Valeri. Welcome to Money Tales. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit about your journey that got you to this point, maybe a couple of those pivotal moments. Yeah. So like everybody's, it's a long road for sure. And the road, the direction and the the curvature of the road has changed a lot for me. I think it starts a lot with my parents, like all of our stories start with our parents. My Both my parents immigrated from Italy to Canada at different times, which is, I think it's an important part of my story. So my mom came over in the early 50s as a two-year-old with my grandparents. So grew up very much Canadian in the Canadian system, educated in Canada. I would say lost a little bit of her Italian roots in that way, especially culturally. My dad is a different character. He came over in his mid-20s, very Italian. Culturally, the mentality and everything that comes with coming from a different country. They met by chance in the 60s. I was born in the 70s, just a couple of years just after my dad started what became the family business. I have a twin sister who's a good friend of mine and very different career paths that we've chosen that we might get into on this podcast. So I think, I mean, for a lot of it, my journey really started and still is very much focused in and around the family business. So like I mentioned, my dad started a technology company in in the 70s. And I I make the joke that timing-wise, it couldn't have been more perfect for him with that technological wave that came in Canada and North America. The company grew to a point where it became much bigger than a mom-and-pop shop, let's say. So I, I started my working career for my dad at the tender age of nine, 10 years old. A lot of my, I would say... What were you doing at that age in the company? So dad manufactured circuit boards, computer chips. So the stuff that you see inside the phones, the computers, the satellites. I was the kid that was pushing the product through a washing machine. I was the guy that was running errands for some of the people on the shop floor. It's an interesting point because I really grew up in a factory. You know, I spent that's where my dad was. And I think as kids, you want to hang out with your parents. So started working for dad as a, as a young fella, spent all of my summers working for him, various roles, quality control, different production aspects. And how many people are in the company? Just I, I know you said a lot, but when you started and over the arc of your growing up. 
in the Canadian manufacturing facility because we had offices throughout the world, but the manufacturing hub, there was about 200 people. It was an interesting way to grow up for sure. And, and uh, I think looking back on it now, I'm, I mean, we'll talk about the transition out of that family business, but looking back on it now, what an experience there. I mean, there was, there was a variety of ethnicities, a variety of cultures. There were so many different languages being spoken. And that's how I grew up, right? So these big Christmas parties, these big summer picnics, and it very much became the identity for me that we're part of this thing that a family business. Sounds like it was also very successful. It was. It was up until a certain point, which was, you know, when the tech bubble eventually burst in 2000, we were a supplier to these companies. And that really changed the landscape of the company. And a lot of our own personal family wealth was affected by that tech bubble burst. And ultimately, dad decided to divest in his company in 2006 when I was 28 years old. And on one hand, that, that should be celebrated because I think I have a deep bias when I work with families today about businesses. Businesses are, are meant to be bought and sold, in my opinion. So on one hand, it was a celebratory experience that my dad started this thing in the 70s and now sold it almost 40 years later. This should be celebrated. What it did for me is it really set me back. Because as I mentioned earlier, I was all in on his dream, on his vision of, of what business should be. So when he sold it, it really screwed me up. I'll be very frank with you. And it wasn't until then where a lot of the anxieties, the relationship to wealth really started to manifest. Prior to that, I was the poster child of entitlement. You know, I grew up very fortunate in a quote unquote wealthy. I'm using the, the air quotes. I know for the listeners that are on, uh, that can't see me. I grew up in a wealthy environment. My family was also very politically involved as well, too. So I got to, I got to experience that lifestyle of travel with the business. You know, dad had a lot of employees, suppliers. It was just, it was just a, big environment to grow up in. And then on top of that, we were very political. My uncle was very politically involved, became a, a high-ranking politician in Canada. I was exposed to these environments you know, before the age of 20. So big business, travel, as well as high-level politics. And it really it, it left a big impression on me that, one, it was a sense of pride, like, wow, you know, here's a guy like my dad that was born in, in very impoverished circumstances in Italy, very impoverished, was able to come to Canada and build this thing called business and do very well for himself with meager, meager beginnings. You know, I tease him, like, it's still not a grasp of the English language. So on one hand, it was, at the time, this is pre-selling, it was just, I wore it as a badge of honor. Like, my family is this. And then at the same time, on my mom's side, my uncle, her brother, got involved in politics. Now, my grandfather, like I mentioned to you earlier, came over in the 50s with my mom. He was a steelworker. So very normal, that immigrant lifestyle. And lo and behold, my uncle becomes a very uh, influential person in politics in Canada. And so this was in my face <laughs> as a young adult. And then I say fortunately now, but unfortunately at the time, especially for my mom, the exposure to money and business and political influence really led me down a path of entitlement, I would say, aggression. I became a very aggressive young adult in how I handled myself. And with that came a party lifestyle. It be, just became, you know, I just, I don't want to say it became every mom's worst nightmare because I wasn't bad in the sense of criminal activity. But I definitely wasn't pulling my weight in the family or you know, I wasn't taking a lot of responsibility for myself. So I was on that way up until 28. You know, I, was, I went and got a master's in management. I was checking the boxes that you're supposed to check in terms of growing up. But I wasn't fully applying myself because I was operating under the mindset. We have the safety net called the family business. So I never really applied myself because, I, like I said, I was whatever happens, whether I get a 90 or a 60, I'm going to go work for my dad and I'm going to take over his company and that's going to be my path. Let's take a closer look at this period of your life when you were entitled, starting when you were a teenager. 
because it's a very impressionable time in life. Can you tell us more specifically what it was like for you beyond school? How were you thinking about money? How were you spending it? Was your family talking about it or was it just the assumption that it would be there always? So not much, I would say very little money conversations. So I was the kid that went to high school with the sports car. It was a black Porsche, 1984 Porsche. Oh, you, you went for it. Mm-hmm. It's funny, Ken, because the car itself was not very, its car was 20 years old by the time I got it. <laughs> it was 20 years old. So I was 16 years old. My dad anoints, my parents were going through a messy divorce at that time. And I almost talk about like the, it was almost like the War of the Roses. If you guys remember that movie with Kathy. Sure. I lived a little bit of, a, of that in my teen years where mom and dad had access to money, so they were spending it. <laughs> so dad handed me down his car. For him, it was a badge of honor because he's saying, you know, I, I was never able to afford anything. At 16 years old, my father was literally living in poverty in Italy. So by him handing me down his first porch, in his mind, he was doing me this great service of, hey, man, I'm giving you a leg up. Go be the coolest kid in school. And at the time, I loved it. But what started to happen, and we talk about pivotal moments, that car started to break down. And I would, so externally, we put a brand new paint job on it, brand new set of tires. But internally, the engine, like I said, it was 20 years old. The engine didn't work well. The car would overheat. It actually, the car, the sunroof would leak when it rained. Looking back, that car really symbolized what was happening in our family at the time where externally we were, we had it all, right? We had a business, successful business. We had a political family. We had contacts, all the things that some people aspire to. I had it at a very young age, but then the things, life started to shift. What was it like for me? So I was, I, you know, we all fall in love for the first time. And I fell in love with, as a young, I don't know if you call it love, but I, my first girlfriend, I guess at the time, broke up with me for a variety of reasons. I would say the overarching reason was I was an egotistical jerk at that time. <laughs> and that was a real, that was kind of the first aha, that you mean this bravado and attitude and aggression doesn't work for everybody? What does that mean, right? So that was kind of the first, the light started to shine on me a little bit brighter that someone rejected me because of how I was acting. And I was like, well, that's interesting. So that was kind of the first, it was that and the car too, where I started to drive this car. And then I started to, at an early age, even though I suppressed it, I started to feel guilty about driving this car. I didn't feel like I earned it. But because of the environment I was growing up in, a lot of it was this you know, masculine kind of egotistical thing where you, I was suppressing those feelings because at the time my dad was this big guy he was a big earner you know and it was like you you want something you go for it you just you, know, you take the ball and you run but that's wasn't I wasn't feeling that you know like I mentioned to you my parents went through a tough divorce like unfortunately a lot of families do and you see mom struggling through that and trying to figure out her path outside of that marriage but this, then you start to learn things about people and your parents that you go, wow, you mean you're just people? Like, and you guys make mistakes? And what is this stuff, right? So I would say around 17, 18, the bubble started to deflate a little bit for me about what really, what's really going on and what do I really want out of life? But still, I was still operating under the mindset of we have money. We have this business. So whatever happens, I always have a place to go to. Okay. That's a great safety net to have. Vincent, tell us, what's it like to grow up in a family where your father created such a big and successful business? Yeah. Intimidating. It's funny you say that because my success definition growing up was if my dad was able to come to Canada with almost nothing and build this big thing, then my, in order for me to be successful, I have to take what he built and double it. So it was, it was very intimidating. But it also plays both sides because on one hand, it was really cool because you have this guy that opens doors for you. All the material things are available to you. 
it's unfortunate, but society views these wealthy families in a certain way. So I had all these opportunities, all the sports events, all that stuff. But internally, it was really scary. It was really intimidating because how do you, and part of it too is a lack of conversations with my dad was, what if I don't achieve those milestones like you did? Is How are you going to feel about that? My identity was tied into the business. You know, when people say, oh, who are you? I would say, you know, my name is Vincent and we do this. My dad does this. It was a badge of honor. So when, when that was taken away, uh, my identity was truly taken away. I didn't know what to tell people. I didn't know who I was. I had no passion for anything but spending money and living this lifestyle. So if your focus, mom and dad, is just building money, then that gets downloaded to me and that becomes my success definition. I got to make a lot of money. So what, that was a very evident theme. So your brand was tied to his brand. He was financially successful. So your brand had to be financially successful. Exactly right. Exactly. It's a lot of pressure. It's a ton of pressure. I ignored the signs in my family that if we don't start to have some more of these heartful conversations, stuff's going to go awry. So it's about embracing that reality and figuring out who you are as an individual. What role, if any, do you want to play in this, in this thing called family and this thing called family wealth? For me, because, you know, and that was the messaging I got, I'm doing this for you, I'm doing this for you, I'm doing this for you. So then if I don't follow that path, am I a letdown? <laughs> so it's like, so, so again, if there's a message that I want to convey, it's the best gift you can give to yourself is becoming really clear on who you want to be, who you are, what are your boundaries, what are your principles, more so if you find yourself in a situation where families are sharing assets together, because your individuality is going to be one of the key things that makes your family successful for multiple generations. It's, it's who you are as that individual. For sure. Great insights, Vincent. Thank you. At what point in your life are you starting to make your own financial decisions and how that, what that feel like? Was that a good thing? Was that uncomfortable? So I'd say I was very fortunate to be able to go overseas to study. So I somehow, some way made my way to Australia and I ended up doing a master's in business down there. So I would say it started there. Like I had my first job outside of the family business in Australia. So I was 24 at the time. I worked for dad, like I said to you, for in a variety of roles. But that was, I became a barista, actually. I learned how to make coffee. Nice. And I loved it. Vincent, was this your decision to do this job at, or was it a requirement? It was my decision. Still very much sandy on the, on the family's payout policy. So I was still receiving money from mom and dad. You know, I was still a starving student, as you could say. But I think part of it was the, the, the friends that I met that owned the coffee shop that I really gravitated to. And I, and I wanted to try something. Again, that was the other pivotal moment for me. So you talk about pivotal moments where now I was building a reputation. I was building a life of my own in another country with nobody knew who I was. Frankly, nobody cared who I was. Nobody was asking me, hey, can your dad give me a job? Or there was none of that because I was so far away from home. I just became Vincent and I make coffee and I study. Um, I'll get to your, to your, co- your question, Kenny, but when did I really start taking over my finances? That was kind of the first point of it where you, start to, you, know, you have to start to manage the dollars. There's only so much money coming in a month. And part of the, the, the barista job was to offset the party lifestyle <laughs> that I was accustomed to in Canada because I was working for dad and everything else. But it really, I think the onus or the need to really manage finances came when my dad sold the company. So I was 28, 27, 28 when he sold. And these things, as you guys know, take a bit of time for it to start and end. But I would say about 28 years old, I would say very late to start self-managing your own finances. But that's when I really had to, you know, as you say, pull up the bootstraps and figure this out because the enterprise value of the business was not what it was in the 90s, right? And this is, again, you talk about these pivotal moments. Because of the tech sector that we were involved in, my family had really two different, I don't want to say two different, I, I really had two different lifestyles. There was the guy growing up in the 90s and early 2000s 
where our company was X, and then you find ourselves in 2006, the company is not worth what I was told it was worth, for example, in the 90s. So all of a sudden you go, oh boy, there's enough money here that nobody's going to starve, but it's not enough after you pay taxes and my mom earned her, her payouts. Is, it's not enough to maintain this, this lifestyle of uber abundance. You know, and, and a lot of it too, I think, my parents, even though my dad was a big earner, one of the books I always reference is called Strangers in Paradise by Jim Grubman. And he, mm, lived, that, he lived that story because he, didn't, he knew how to make money. It was managing it. <laughs> it's a different conversation. That manifested in me where I always had the ability to make money, but it, managing it, keeping it, it's a very different conversation, very different mindset. So a lot of that wasn't taught to me. I had to learn it on my own. And in my case, it was really baptism by fire because it was like, you need to do this now to figure out your own life. Prior to that, my life was working for dad. Eventually, he's going to retire. I'm going to take over that job and life's going to be cool. Vincent, tell us about figuring it out. How did you do that? What did you do to then start getting control of a situation that you thought you didn't need to work again, or you never need to work something, work at a different job, what'd you end up doing? So this is the point where I think I've, I'm so blessed that people come into my life when they're supposed to. So at the, one of the lowest points in my life, when my dad was deciding to sell the business and I was basically like, I have to go and rebrand my whole life. That like I've, so, I've told everybody this story of who I am and what I'm going to do. And now I got to go and change all of like how I met my wife. Angela came into my life at 28. She was self-employed, had her own place. I like, what is this? What do you mean you have, you have your own bank account? Like what is going on here? I'm a very lucky person that I, I met Angela at that time. And she basically helped pull me up and said, look, she saw something in me that gave me the confidence to do it. So dad sells the business. Was he in conversation with you when he was doing this? Absolutely not. No, it never dawned on my dad. Go ahead. So the, it just sounds like the rug was like completely pulled from underneath your vision of your future. In a way. I mean, dad always, I mean, I was smart enough to understand that the business was not doing as well as it previously did. I mean, num numbers don't lie. That's why we all love numbers. They don't they tell a story. So I was smart enough to realize that the business isn't doing what it's, you know, the business is not doing what it was doing in the 90s, as an example, but it's been around for already 30 something years. The alarm, my dad wasn't ringing the alarm bells. I think part of him selling was me being away as well, too. And that was something that I used to hold. Maybe if I never went away to school, the conversations would have been different. But to your question, Sandy, no. And that bothered me for a long time. Like, how dare you do this to me? How dare you not involve me in stuff that's going to affect my life? I've moved, I've grown from that and you learn it's, it was his, it was his choice and his choice only to sell his business. I definitely was blindsided by it, Sandy. That kind of was the spiral where I found myself. Let me just back up once. I grew so much in Australia in, in my own identity and becoming Vincent, not the son of, my dad's also Vince. And I, so I used to carry this junior tag with me for a long time because I was junior. I was Vince's son, Vince, junior. Australia, the distance, and this is why I always encourage next generation, you need, you got to find your own path. And if that path brings you back to your family enterprise and it works for you, amazing. But then you need to have that, you need to find your own, your own way. You have to fall down. Hopefully when you fall, it doesn't break you, but you have to fall. That's what Australia did for me. It allowed me to figure out who I was as, a, as an adult, what I liked, what I didn't like, the person I wanted to be. So I was so excited to come back to Canada with this master's and this newfound knowledge of me and how I can make this business with my dad. And literally, I got back June of 2006. We sat down July of 2006 and he said to me, here's what the next six months are going to look like for me and for you. I've decided to sell. And there's no role for you here because that was part of the, you know, there was just no role for me there. You got to figure it out. So in amongst all of this going, holy cow, now what do I do? This beautiful person 
named Angela comes into my life, and I'm like, I got Where did you guys meet, Vincent? Tell us a story quickly. It's interesting. Uh, we've always known each other. So we grew up in a city, it's a, not small, but a, about a half a million people. We went to competing high schools. <laughs> I've always known her older brother. And it's funny how we, we met. She pinged me on Facebook, which was a thing back in 2007 when Facebook first started. And the joke that she made to me was, I never would date you because I've heard stories about you, right? This arrogant party guy that just, you know, turns life and doesn't really have. But it was interesting that we met at that time. The universe was giving me a signal here because she literally met me at the, at a, the most pivotal transition point of my life, which was moving away from my dad. Can we go back to this entitlement time? Why do you feel you had an entitled perspective? Was there a disconnect to the money? Were you not? Is this part of you know the the conversations you weren't having with your dad? But what's your hindsight have on that type of attitude? I mean, the easy answer is whatever I wanted, I got. That's just. I mean, yeah. there's, no other, there's no other way to say it. I mean, okay. we lived in a big house. We had the cars. We did the expensive vacations. We had the big parties. So I I grew up in a very, in that environment. You know, we used to have fundraisers at our house with hundreds of people seated in our backyard, right? So you see this and you go, wow, life is easy. That's right? your normal. That's, That's your normal. normal. Doors are open. I was, I became very much a name dropper where I would say, you know, like, you know who I am and you know who I could call. And it was, I embodied, I really took on this persona. And I would say to my mom's credit, she saw this and pushed back on it a lot growing up. I think this was a lot of my parents' arguments uh, when I was a youth. You know, they're, they're friendly today, but as we know that these things take time for, for wounds to heal. I just never got said no. You don't hear no at the house. And then you go to the factory and you're, like, you're, people, it's, this might sound harsh, but it was reality for me. You're almost revered as the son of the owner. And so even, even when I would perform poorly at work, if I came late, if I came to work hungover, if I didn't show up to work, there was no consequence. You know? And I think a part of it, too, it's interesting because, I, you know, I, as I mentioned about that book, Strangers in Paradise, this is a new frontier for my mom and dad. They literally did not know what they were doing in terms of managing this thing called wealth. So, and you know, you look at both my parents grew up very, hum, very humble beginnings. And I think for my dad, for him to be able to buy whatever his kids, my sister and I wanted. The other thing too, that I just through my own research and experience, because his time was at the business, what he couldn't give me was time, but what he could give me was material stuff. So I think in a lot of ways, my dad is almost 80. He's, we're very, very close today. We've talked a lot about this stuff. I think that was his way of showing me he loved us, right? And, and, and I, again, it's, it's what are people's relationship to money and what, is, what are people's personal success definitions? I think for my dad at that time, it's changed for him, at that time was by me being able to afford this, I'm, I'm successful in life. So to your question earlier about entitlement, it's just like, no, I've never heard the word no. Do you think your sister had the same experience as you? You guys are twins, you said, right? Yeah, and very different. Very different. Why, why was it different? Was there a gender role difference playing out here or was it something entirely different? I would say yes, Sandy. Definitely a gender role difference. I mean, as I mentioned to you, my dad being a very Italian and my sister worked at the company as well for a long time before she went off and did her PhD and, and all the stuff that she's accomplishing today. But I was afforded opportunities that she wasn't, frankly. And, I, and this was a challenge for her and I to work through. It's just, you know, like I was the one that went on the sales trips. I was the one that was invited into board meetings because I was the son. I, I mean, it's, it's not right, but that's the way the environment that we grew up in. And like a lot of cultural family, Italian families, the boy is the next one in line. And I, our family followed down that path. I was looked at and spoken to and definitely took 
on the mindset that I was the anointed one. Like I'm the next one in line here. And it served me well up until <laughs> there was no longer a, a business that I had to rethink how I wanted to approach my life and my relationships for sure. Let's talk about the period of time after you met Angela and you're now becoming financially independent. Mm -hmm. It sounds as if you're a completely different person than the, really different. the man you were before. 100%. And yeah. so I would just love to hear more about that. Yeah, completely different person. I look at pictures when I was like 19 or 20, like what a jerk that guy was, right? I just, we, we all have growing up to do and life deals you different, you know, provides different circumstances. The ability to be self-sustained and not have to ask mom and dad for money and just being able to self-manage was the absolute most liberating feeling I could ever have asked for. I mean, I'm so grateful. I'm grateful for both experiences. I'm grateful for the, for the entitled phase where I frankly got to see a lot of the world, right? And I'm so grateful for the struggle. I am so grateful that the best thing that ever happened to our family relationships was the business being sold. The best thing that ever happened for me was my dad deciding to retire and step aside at 65. And basically said, figure it out, kid, when I was 30. <laughs> it was the greatest thing that could ever have happened to me. It's given me such a sense of appreciation for life, how hard it is to make money, how hard it is to, to, to manage it, to keep it. It sounds like that was a great gift. 2006 was a great gift to you and to the rest of your life. Tell us about how did your conversations about money change from that day forward? How do you think about it? You know, with Angela, with your dad, with your mom? Part of it too was the necessity to talk about it, number one, because dad still had a liquidity event. There was still a lot of assets to manage for both mom and dad. So I took on that role for the family. But it's interesting, Candy, what you said, my relationship to money. <laughs> I went from like two extremes. I went from like Hugo Boss suits <laughs> at 20, never even looking at a price tag. Like, you want to buy it, we'll figure it out later. So now, or if you ask my wife, I think frugal is sexy. <laughs> I really do. I've become so aware of finances and the management of it, even though it's not what I do anymore, but just in our own family finances that I don't want to say the word obsessive, but I'm definitely aware of the rise and fall that the path of wealth, financial wealth, can take. So you hear the, the shirt sleeves of shirt sleeves phenomenon, right? I don't want the listeners to think, oh, poor Vincent. The family did very well in 2006 financially. We struggled with the relational stuff and how each of us played into that system. But it's definitely, it's just now that I'm responsible for my own wealth and my own life management, I treat my dollar very differently than how I treated my dad's dollar when I was 20. Mm, well said. How much time do you spend thinking about money today? The mechanics of it, not often, but I would say I worry about it. I worry about more so the economy than my money, I think, because I'm fairly confident that my wife and I have structured ourselves in a way that we've built a buffer. We put the plans in place for, the, for our personal what-if scenarios. So I'm pretty confident in our family uh, money management. But you ask, it's interesting, what I do worry about a lot is the actual economy itself, like that macro stuff that, what if we do go through another 2008, 2009? Like, you know, now we're in a pandemic. What's that going to mean for not only my family, but the neighbors and the country. And, and these are things that I never worried about before. I never would have worried about before. I think part of it for me was that personal experience of seeing this rapid rise of wealth creation from dad and then a bit of a dip because of what happened in the market, right? And I think so now that worries me. So what, that, what that's done for me it's made me really, really conservative with my money, how I invest it, maybe sometimes too conservative. 
that's what allows me to have peace at night. I would forego, it's not right or wrong, it's just what I do. I forego, you know, higher rates of return because I'm all about capital preservation just because of what I, what I, what I witnessed, that if you don't watch this stuff, it can go away. The other thing too, what it's taught me is the lifestyle management, right? People tease me, right? Like financially, I can afford a lot more than what we do, but I don't. I've adopted and I wear it like a badge of honor, this conservative mindset about money. And I enrich ourselves in different ways. My focus is not just solely on being the most financially wealthiest person I can be. There's other facets of my life that I've learned are more important than just building monetary wealth. Would you say a little bit more about that, Vincent? Because I think this is a really important point because in the whole field of wealth management, there is a focus on the financial capital of a person, of a family. But there's so many other types of capital that provide value to people that hardly ever get discussed. Yeah, well, I think, yeah, absolutely, right? So you're talking about like the human, the social or intellectual, spiritual value. I mean, it's it, for me, that it really comes down to your personal definition of success, right? So, so you look at my personal experience. In 2006, despite the challenges that the company was having because of market conditions, our family still made out financially strong in 2006. But it didn't, there was like this void. It didn't feel right. I wasn't happy, even though I still could have bought whatever I wanted, let's say in 2006. This just wasn't, I didn't feel fulfilled. I found fulfillment in different things. I found fulfillment in being, learning new stuff, learning new skills, figuring out who I want to be as a person and trying to live those principles. And the emphasis too in my life now has really become on relationships. So I put a lot of value in the people that I associate with, in my friendships, with my family, right? Because I can have all the money in the world, but if I have nobody to talk to, to share things with, in my mind, that's not wealth. It really isn't wealth. So that's the focus of today. And that's how I'm trying to raise my son is that, yeah, it's, look, it's great to have money. It, money is needed in our society to live. But I think and what I have found is that since my emphasis has not been just on making money, it's on all these other, the soft things that we say, I, I've had the best years financially the last five or six years without the focus being on making money. It's been on building relationships, building teams. And I just find that so much good has come from this path that I've chosen and this emphasis on just money creation. You just brought up your son. So can we talk to Vincent, the dad, who referenced your dad's dollar had a different value than your own dollar. How are you bringing this into your relationship with your son, all this learning or being a dad? How do you talk about finances with him? Yeah. And I do this, you know, part of it, it's interesting because this is some of the work that we do with families is educating families on the importance of starting early with their kids about the value of a dollar. So already, I mean, he's three and a half. He's a, like these little kids are little sponges, oh, right? But he's a little one. Even now, like if Leo gets a present, we talk about where the present come from. I mean, daddy had to work to get this present. That's not how I grew up. Presents just came and nobody questioned it. So I talk a lot with my, even at his age, about work and how the day is divided up. There's hours for work time. There's hours for social time. Mummy, you know, mummy and daddy have a role to play for clients and for work and things aren't free. You know, and even at his age, we go in pre-COVID, you know, you go to a coffee shop, I make him pay. You know, I'll, I'll say, go to the counter. He's a sharp kid, right? He's beside me. How much is this? I'll say, Leo, this is $3 for daddy to pay $3. I had to earn, in Canada, you have to earn five, right? Because there's tax. <laughs> <laughs> You're laughing. going full board with that education. I love it. I, do too. I, I think it's just important for him to understand that that donut is not free. So we're working for that donut. I mean, and, and, and he gets it. Like now, you know, you see him coming to my office and he'll say, Are, you're working. Yep. So he respects that. It's like he's, he gets it. And I think, again, 
I become such an open book, right? With my story. And this is one of the things I encourage families to do is like transparency is so key, a comfortable level of transparency. There's a lot of factors that go into families being transparent with one another. But I mean, with my little guy, I'm going to take him along the way. I'm not going to sugarcoat things for him. We're going to talk about stuff. We're going to talk about the difference of, you know, if I make a decision, I'm going to let him in. We play games, right? So we have five marbles. I'll say, Leo, clean up your toys. I give you five marbles. That's your reward for cleaning up your toys. But then I'll say, one goes to paying for your bedroom. He's like, you know, <laughs> one goes to paying. <laughs> so he's starting to get the principles that it's not just about him, first of all, and that there's a lot of factors in life that before that toy ends up on your desk, there's work involved before it just arrives for you to play with. And I, I mean, you do it in a fun way, the little guy, but I, I am very conscious that these are the formidable years for the little people. From my perspective, it's important. And it's incredible the questions he asks me. Like, we'll go to the store and he'll say to me, how much does that cost? And I'm just like, wow, wow, right? Great. At least he can associate that there's a, there's a cost associated with, with something that he wants. So. That's some of the ideas that I play with with him. Yeah, I mean, we all love our kids, for those of us that have them on the, on the call. Uh, the other thing, too, I'm grateful for having him later in life. I had Leah when I was 39, 38, sorry, and it just allowed me to go through all this growth and learn and, and figure out who I needed to be. And before, he, we were blessed to have him join us. We don't shy away from these conversations, that's for sure. And he definitely hears a lot of no. (laughs) (laughs) That's a difference. Yeah, big one. Yeah. Vincent, you've had such a rich life, right? Pun intended and not intended. What do you most want to do that you haven't done yet? That, you know, Sandy, that's a great question, which brings me back to my, I guess, as I was breaking the entitlement cycle, what I was feeling prior to moving away was just that question. By 21 years old, I had traveled to a lot of countries. I was exposed to business, politics. So I used to ask myself that question all the time. If I've done all of this at 21, what am I going to do when I'm older? And that's what festered a lot of the anxiety and guilt that I started to feel. What do I want to do? I want to be the best husband and parent to my son. We're actually we're expecting another one in January. Yeah, so congratulations. I think that having the... I don't want to say fortunate, having the experience of my parents going through a messy divorce, I'm hyper aware of the impact that has on the kids. When my wife hears this, whether or not we're destined to be together forever, I think it's something that's really been ingrained in me to really be hyper conscious about our role as parents to my son. So I think that's for me, Sandy, because I was so fortunate to have a lot of these materialistic experiences as a kid. Now it's really about how do I contribute to making this the best family that we can be, the best environment for my son to grow up in and his soon-to-be brother or sister, we don't know. And then the other thing too now is I guess the calling that I've had with my work. I've been consulting with family enterprises, how I refer to them, and just being the best advisor consultant for them. And what do I mean by that? By staying as present as possible for them. So that requires me to continuously do a lot of work on myself so that when I'm working with families and stuff comes up, my bias is left. That's my story. It's not your story. And I think ultimately, I mean, once we're allowed to, I think after once this pandemic subsides, is one of the things that I'm so grateful for my parents was the gift of travel. I think it's so important for Leo, my son, to experience different cultures, you know, different societies. I think it's very important for, for growth. So those are some of the things I aspire to. And just being as real as possible. I'm really on that path now of, of being the best person I can be. I'm sure we, we all make mistakes. I'm, once my wife hears this, she'll be like, what are you talking about? But I think that's kind of where I'm at. I love the work that I do. I've got that entrepreneurial bug that I definitely saw in my dad. 
And that's kind of where I'm at. So it's really, you know, work hard, but really balance that out with my focus on building the family. The other thing I, I will say is I look forward to the day that I can walk into a, a Porsche dealership and take my dad out for a spin in my own car. That's kind of my, you know, there's still a little bit of material. I mean, we're all a little bit, we all want to have a little bit of fun too. So that's one of the things to give back. One of the things that we were able to do is, is just be able to give back, right? Like, cause my wife and I have been very fortunate with our work the last, she's been self-employed for a long time that we're able to do things for the family now that my dad was always on the hook for as an example, right? So the fact now that I can take dad out for a really expensive dinner or take him away for a weekend and I pay for it is a real sense of pride for me. He still thinks I'm crazy that I do that. It's just nice to have the responsibility shared now amongst us. I mean, I'd be lying if a lot of that is not, you know, Angela has allowed me that opportunity too for us to build this thing called family together. So I think it's uh, just continuing down the path that we're at. What's your next money conversation and who's it going to be with? Probably Angela. <laughs> it's interesting, right? People's different risk appetite. So I've also married into a family enterprise. So she's, her and her family have a, have a small family enterprise. Her risk appetite is much higher than mine. She's been, I guess, getting on my case as to what are we doing with this money that we're building. So that's probably the next money conversation we're going to have is, is, is what do we want to do? What is that next phase of, of wealth accumulation for us? You know, and I think you, make, you bring up an interesting point, Cammy, too, is my dad is getting, you know, he's getting close to 80. We had structurally, we've put a lot of the estate stuff in place. And it's funny because I do this for clients, right? I encourage to have these legacy conversations. But like the, like the plumber that has a leaky faucet, that's probably a conversation I should be having more of with my own dad, as an example, and my mom. What legacy, if any, do they want to leave behind from a monetary perspective. Thank you for sharing that with us. Vincent Valeri, what a totally inspiring conversation this has been. Thank you so much for telling us your money tales. There's just so much good stuff in there. I just love what you've been able to do in your life and how you've given yourself the time and space to grow from your experience and have a completely different outlook. Thank you. It's been a ride for sure. Like you said, it's the only ride that I know. <laughs> so I'm so grateful and for you guys for the opportunity. If my story can help anybody be more self-reflective, then I'm doing my job, frankly. I think that my mission is to really help people just take more responsibility for themselves and their actions because that individual responsibility, especially in these things called family enterprise, really ripples. So Families that speak to each other and, and get to have those crucial conversations, they're just better families. And for that, their wealth will be better managed, the, the conversations about legacy will be better. But it's hard. It's definitely hard. So if my story can help open up some of those doors, then I'm grateful for that. We agree. And thank you, Vincent. Thank Thanks. you. And congratulations again on your growing family. That's so exciting. Oh, it is exciting. Thank you. Cammie here with a personal financial insight. In our conversation with Vince Valeri, he discussed how integral his family's business was to his identity and his lifestyle as a young adult. Across the globe, most businesses are family-owned or controlled. Some remain mom-and-pop shops, while others grow to be multinational enterprises with thousands of employees. Regardless of the size, family enterprises involve a variety of personal financial considerations, and today we're going to focus our insight on one of them, succession planning. Like non-family-owned businesses, succession planning is broadly comprised of two components that are often intertwined, especially at the early stages of the business. They are ownership succession and leadership succession. Family relationships, dynamics, joint ownership, and the different needs of individual family members can introduce complexities into succession planning. Let's look at ownership succession first. As a business becomes financially successful, its value grows, leading to the happy problem of figuring out how to best to optimize the value for the family. The family may decide to sell the business to a third party to reap the benefits of what it has built, or it may instead decide to transition ownership through the family for future generations to continue to operate and grow. 
A sale to a third party would be a taxable event and could allow the family members involved to move on with their resulting financial lives as separate individuals. Or they could decide to invest some or all the proceeds elsewhere as a continued family ownership unit. If they instead decide to keep the business in the family and transition ownership to the rising generation, the transition may trigger income tax and or give tax considerations, depending on how the business is currently owned and structured, the value of the business, as well as the method and time period over which it's transitioned. Leadership succession is another consideration for family enterprises. When family businesses are created, the founders are often both the owners and the leaders of the company. Depending on how the business grows and evolves, ownership and leadership may be intentionally separated when the founders decide to sell or transition the ownership to others. However, there are many situations when the separation of ownership and leadership occurs sooner because the founding family members' interests change or their talents and competencies no longer meet the business's needs, even though they'll continue to be a majority owner of the business. Regardless of when leadership transition occurs, many families struggle with whether and how to transition leadership to other family members. By example, a common consideration for many family businesses that employ more than one generation of the family is whether the rising generation of family members should be the de facto next leaders of the business because they're part of the family, or whether the rising generation must first meet certain experience, education, and other requirements to be considered the successor leaders of the company instead of non-family executives. To help navigate situations like the one I've just described, many families who plan to own a business together for the long term will decide to create governance practices and structures. The goal is to put systems in place to guide the family and the business in ways that are optimal for all stakeholders. The governance platform may include a family constitution, a family council, and or a family assembly. They may also create a board of directors to control and govern the actual business. A solid governance structure creates best practices for managing the interests of the family and the business over time. Many successful families around the world have used these structures to build, grow, and sell multiple enterprises over several generations. For more personal finance insights, please listen to other Money Tales episodes and go to our blog Fathom at Asperian.com forward slash fathom. And we welcome hearing from you. Please email podcasts at experient.com. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog Fathom, head on over to experient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.